Welcome to the Hansa Conversations, where we discuss some ideas behind the Hansa therapeutic philosophy and other ideas around therapy, movement, and yoga practices as they relate to life in general. We welcome you, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Hansa Conversations. Uh, back with me, Meta from Hansa Indonesia and Vincent Boleta, the founder and director of Hansa. Um, so today um, we are back here talking about a different part of the body and uh, we're moving up the body this time. We're talking about the thorax. Um, so hi, Vincent. Hi, Ready Meta. to chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, man. Let's get it going. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, great. So this is exciting. We're moving up the body. We are talking about the thorax, an area that houses a lot of um, important organs in there. Um, so let's begin with, um, I guess, a, a way to describe the thorax, because when we talk about the pelvis last time, you use the word um, watery, mysterious, um, a little bit nebulous. So how would you describe the thorax? Oh, very good question. Uh, uh, we'll have a couple of descriptions available for you. One is uh, spacious. Uh, the other one is buoyancy. Uh, these two, I think, um, beautifully interlink with each other in the sense of spaciousness. Naturally creates this feeling of vitality and lightness with, in relationship to the rest of the body, becomes quite buoyant. And so it's a really nice way of interpreting, I think, the thorax gives it uh, some level of integrity that it holds its own weight, if you like. And also it's, I think, the midway point between the head and the pelvis. So it plays a really important role in linking the tail and head. Mm, yeah. Is the buoyancy, this, I mean, obviously it has something to do with the fact that the lungs is there too and there's a big air exchange happening around the thorax as well. Yeah, there is that, absolutely. There's the manipulation of pressure and also the oscillation of one's centre of gravity slightly below that point. But in terms of when we encourage an internal view of our ribcage from a three-dimensional perspective, you know, we start to notice that there is a level of verticality that's associated to it that comes in the form of what we just mentioned, pressure, but it also it's a tonal support through the muscular uh, reactivity from the front, the back, and internal body. And then at the same time, we have this beautiful apparatus called your diaphragm that's able also to manipulate this sense of buoyancy or suspensory relationship and uh, and I think the diaphragm plays a key role but to optimize the diaphragmatic movement I still believe that three-dimensional uh, relationships need to be cultivated from an interpretive perspective. So so picking on these few words the buoyancy um, the suspensory feeling in this region and as well as um, the muscular tone in this region. Um, I think this might be, I think, um, something to that is easily understandable with our mind, but with our body, that sense of buoyancy sometimes is missing. Um, and a lot of people, I mean, me included, um, how do we get that sense back to our body? Oh, that's... Uh... It's a bit of a journey there, Meta. Um, how do we get back to 
to sensing this relationship. Well, there's there's a couple of I think tangible techniques that we can develop. Um, one is obviously starting to look at our breathing mechanics, and when we encourage a breathing pattern that has more of a posterior bias, we start to we move into starting to appreciate what buoyancy or suspension feels like because now we're encouraging a a pattern of movement that is really starting from the back of the ribs which i think is essential to creating a decompressive relationship to the spinal column but at the same time as we pressurize the back ribs we start to feel a, a sense of lift and space emerge on the vertical line so that's the first one. So the breathing pattern has a posterior orientation. There's an element of tone and containment through the front of the body that allows this to happen. And I generally tend to orientate um, people's attention to it through this idea of softness. There's an inward projection that allows for us to eventually create this level of support and mild resistance to the distension and projection forward that sometimes we do when we breathe in or when we raise our arms above our head or sometimes these patterns are indoctrinated in us and depending upon on teachers or the system involved where we lift our, our lower ribs and project our heart region outwardly this all reduces the level of three-dimensionality of buoyancy and that sense of lightness that I think that you can achieve through that upper part of the body. Okay. Um, this two things from there. So breathing, ha, the softness in front that you talk about. I mean, if if we breathe without that softness, if we push the belly forward or the chest forward when we breathe what does that do to the to the region to the thoracic body and um, what are some of the things that might not serve us when we breathe that way yeah i think there's some technicalities here but let's consider when we uh, over exaggerate the distension of the abdomen and I, i'm going to highlight this what happens is that we pressurize the lower structures more and depressurize uh, the upper structure. So there is a general collapse of the thorax. I don't. I don't see. Uh, and don't see a supporting uh, vertical relationship to the thorax. In actual fact, what we do is there's a sense of collapse that's associated to this over distending of the abdomen or diaphragmatic breathing that's sometimes encouraged. At the same time, we we by default move into regions of our body. Uh, when we do diaphragmatic breathing in this way, that are already uh, aligned to distension, already behaviorally are orientated to project outwardly. And so a mild form of resistance to this diaphragmatic movement of the belly distending forward, I think is essential to first optimize the lower lobes of the lungs to expand. And then at the same time, maintain a level of integrity to the spinal column that supports the pelvic floor response. And also, if you like, the internal structure that is considered to be your core. Now, I find that the breathing pattern, posterior breathing pattern, 
optimizes, coordinates, and orientates the pelvic floor and the inner core structure to be much more synergized. There's more cohesiveness in relationship to this. And then at the same time, you know, most of the oxygen exchange happens at the lower lobes of the lungs. So, and most of the lungs are in the back of the body. So the orientation here is to maximize that interchange, I suppose. And so that mild form of resistance at the beginning of your inhale, where we start to direct that uh, subtle pressure uh, change at the back of the body, I think is, is, is a much more beneficial way of introducing the person into breathing rhythms. But also from a biomechanical and structural relationship, I think it's more appropriate in supporting them uh, when they're moving and when they're also performing yoga postures or whatever it may be that they're into. So a lot of this, um, there seems to be a lot more um, a discussion around pressure when it comes to this area. Like earlier, you even mentioned that, you know, the, the breathing here, the, the function of diaphragm here will affect also uh, the, how the pelvic floor behaves and moves. And uh, is there a similar thing that happens up towards the body, towards the head? Yeah, it does. I think I think what we have, you know, and it's just a hypothesis from my perspective, but what we have is three different chambers, the, the cranium, the thorax, and the pelvis, and each has their own pressure system, if you like. And I think what we can do is manipulate these pressure systems. And through that uh, manipulation, we get reflexive muscular tone and facial response uh, through it. And this is all done through the manipulation of, of breath. And so I think what we do in a yoga practice or what some yoga concepts out there teach us is how to internally manipulate the inner environment, but more importantly, how we can make these three sections more cohesive with each other. And each section has a different um, behavioral relationship to, to movement, to space, to gravitational influences, to kinetic rebounds. Uh, and so we need to encourage a, a different interpretation of the way that we perceive our body. So that's why when I talk about the thorax being light and suspended and buoyant, because I think this is characteristically something that um, aligns with the behavior of the thorax and aligns in a particular way that maintains integrity in the upper uh, spine. But more importantly, it encourages a decompressive quality to the lower spine. And with that, we start to get a nice natural response, as I mentioned before, through the core structure all the way deep down into the pelvic region. So once we maintain that integrity and um, that creates that beautiful support of the core structure, like you said earlier, then, then it helps the, uh, the mechanism and the way the head and the tail works better. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit on that and also what are some of the, I guess, dysfunctions that can uh, rise when we lose that lightness, that buoyancy of this region or the thoracic region. Well, let's let's think of some of the structures that are associated posteriorly to the diaphragm and also the lower rib cage, and and these structures I think link the thorax to the pelvis, and they act as as pillars of support, but also transmission of information as well. And these structures are 
quite internal and also there's elements of superficial orientations. So the first one which we are familiar with is the psoas that kind of links the lower body to the upper body. It, it starts at a relatively superficial region, but it internally projects itself through the pelvic area and then through into the back of the body. And, and, and its connectivity is through the length of the lower spine. But it acts as an important stabilizing force for the diaphragmatic uh, back wall. And it's essential to think of that as a supporting structure. And so maintaining any structure that is supported usually maintains a level of uh, buoyancy and, and, and lift to it and maintains its uh, orientation in relationship to space. The next muscle that I think is essential that by default sometimes can become quite reactive is the quadratus lumborum muscle that really again from the back rib cage all the way down to the pelvis and again interdigitates with the lower spine. It's another aspect of, of um, how we can support the, the back wall of the diaphragm. And so these, these two, two areas, I suppose, or two muscles that I've just mentioned are essential for the relationship of what's happening in the thorax to be transmitted and also information from the pelvis be reversed back up into the body. So the transmission of, of movement through the thorax is, is both upward and downward. But then you've got a number of really clever um, physiological uh, organs. Not all, I wouldn't call, yeah, I suppose you could call them organs from the fascial perspective and mm. that link beautifully from the cardiac diaphragmatic area all the way up into the cranial region. So without without boring you too much, but you know there is this wonderful um, lacing of fascial response all the way down into the pelvic floor area. So the manipulation of pressure is felt through these lines of um, of, of structural support, which then transmits information up and down the body, and to maintain these lines of support, there has to be a level of tone and integrity to them. And if there's a level of laxity or collapse within the skeletal uh, framework, then you find that the information is going to be um, less attained and, and maybe skewed. I hope that makes sense because there's just a lot, a lot of words there. <laughs> it, it, it was a lot of words, but I think, I think we get it. Um, I just want to touch a little bit more upon the diaphragm. You mentioned the backside of the diaphragm a lot more than than the front. Can you just maybe um, for those who's not familiar with the diaphragm, just share a little bit more about the diaphragm, how it's shaped, how it behaves, because it, it's a big part of this thoracic region. It is. It is. It's a, it's a dome-like uh, shape, muscular shape. Uh, it's attached from T6 roughly down to T12 from a from a general perspective, but it actually progresses further into the spinal column, and the and the tendinous aspect of the diaphragm actually starts to interdigitate with the the anterior longitudinal ligament that passes all the way down into your pelvis. Most of the musculature of the diaphragm is at the back. A lot of also the connective tissue that's um, in the diaphragm is also at the front. So our ability to utilize the, the back of the diaphragm is much more natural to us than it is to the front. 
but sometimes we we get um, indoctrinated into particular breathing patterns and that I don't think are actually supporting the natural functionality of what the diaphragm does. And so we start to um, skew its behavior towards certain belief systems that, or certain beliefs of how we should be using our breathing patterns. But in, in essence, you know, uh, the descending of the diaphragm generally happens more at the back of the body than it does at the front of the body. And so I think uh, rough estimation, and, and I might be misquoting these figures, but roughly the back of the diaphragm descends by 10 centimeters and the front roughly about by three. So that mm -hmm. shows you that there is a lot of movement in the back of the body, more so that we can utilize than the front of the body. And sometimes visually when we start to try and project our belly to descend forward, I think it's it's minimizing that um, behavior that I've just mentioned that we want more of the back of the diaphragm because that's where all the musculature is to be uh, utilized there and the distension forward I think actually restricts that. It also creates a certain compressive quality to the lower spine and it also creates at a certain points in the spinal uh, region whether it be within the lower rib cage area or the lower spinal region a hinging relationship which I think creates more compressive forces and, and in some respects the distension of the belly forward also uh, does a disservice to the core musculature because it it starts to desensitize it to tone and it encourages a certain lengthening component that I think is not useful especially in that area and also with what's mentioned before that build-up of pressure again it plays all manner of um, distractions towards the pelvic floor it, it, it also creates a certain uh, uncoordinated response to the mechanics of your breathing and so when i think about rib cage and lower spine core strength and core responsiveness these are all interconnected and i think when we start to project our attention to what's more appropriate in terms of our breathing rhythms? What's, what's, how do we want to maximize already what's there? This leads into a better coordinated response further down the body that supports our structure in so many different ways. That's, that's amazing how everything is so interconnected and linked. And I think we, we're getting a better picture on how this area is linked and how the core, core, muscular, uh, uh, core muscles work to support the, the lower region, the pelvic, the pelvic floor, as well as the breathing mechanism. But I'm going to just bring it slightly upwards and, and, and ask about then what is the relationship between whether it's the diaphragm um, or uh, uh, the diaphragm and the heart, and because heart is a big part of this region as well, how does that um, comes into this formula? Well, everything is quite compact in the internal body, <laughs> and so so everything influences everything else. Um, so the heart is is part of the diaphragmatic uh, response, if you want to call it that. Uh, the heart is part of the lung response as well. Um, but where the heart's situated more or less on the diaphragm, there isn't as much movement as you think there is. Um, there's a certain level of stability um, that's associated to where the heart 
is connected to the diaphragmatic area. There is movement there, but it's not the same degree of movement that you would see in other parts of the diaphragmatic wall. And and then at the same time, there is certain um, interconnectedness between the diaphragm, the lung structure, and the heart through a wonderful uh, fascial web or matrix, and that you know basically ascends all the way up towards the crown of the head, or not even the crown of the head, but really at the at the deep aspects of your cranium. And uh, and it's, there's a really clever attachment in this area as well, where really the the fascial diaphragmatic cardiac uh, relationship uh, becomes more unified. So then this region, coming back to its functionality, and so now we understand the behavior that it needs to behave um, and how important it is to towards so many functions of the body, I mean, including the breath, which is quite essential. Uh, so for somebody who is missing some of these qualities, how can we return these qualities back to this region? Because, I mean, honestly, when it comes to yoga, when it comes to thoracic region, I think we are quite limited in what we understand. And most of the time, this region, the movement that comes to mind when we think about this region is really more of a more of an extension of this region or what people often say like a heart opening pose um so can you expand on that a little bit uh yeah i suppose how do we how do we get greater connectivity uh i mentioned softness before the softness um in terms of uh, both as an attitude of how we perceive the front of the body but also softness is something that is absorbent, that allows a inward directional relationship, like a soft bed. You know, when you place a certain weight on it, it becomes absorbed and it, and it deepens into the structure more. So there's a, a, a specific area that I think is worthy of investigating from a practical point of view, and that is the, the top of the sternum, and I'll use a technical word, and that is called your manubrium. I think this area here is is a, a wonderful entry point to starting to appreciate both the the idea of softness and depth that you want to interpret through your thorax, but also softness has a um, an association to greater sensitivity, and also it kind of broadens your peripheral uh, view of your body. Um, it becomes a much more parasympathetic orientation, so that allows us to problem solve or at least start to appreciate our body from a much more uh, expansive perspective. Uh, I think softness is attitudinal, but there's also techniques that you can administer just practically to establish this internal relationship more. Uh, and then it's, it's, I think there's another component that I think is essential, and that is um, learning a little bit more about the anatomy of the body, you know, the structures that are there, and not so much the technicalities of it, but the potential behaviors as well. And that gives you some insight of how things are operating on a daily and dynamic level. So having some level of understanding and knowledge of the human anatomy, I think, is a critical component because there's some 
really beautiful influential structures. I've mentioned one, which is the manubrium. But then when you look at the rib cage, the spaces between the rib cage, I think, is also really essential. Um, I always see the rib cage like a, a xylophone. Mm. Um, each individual rib resonates as a slightly different vibrational relationship to the one above or below it. And you notice that the rib cage at its base is quite broad and at the top it's quite narrow. Uh, so, and, and sometimes I, you know, imagine myself running my fingers along the individual ribs, creating music, if you like. <laughs> uh, um, and, but there is the, the area of the manubrium, which really sits at the top end of the rib cage, where it's, it's most narrow. I think this is here where we need the most space. And on, on a practical level, this here, this area here, from a circulatory perspective, it's essential for a good communication. Uh, and then at the same time, it accentuates the feeling of suspension and buoyancy. Uh, this area too, and around the neck, first, second rib collarbone area, can be quite compressive and people are restrictive. Tension seems to accumulate in this area, superficial tension. And so it's a really important area to maintain some level of sensitivity and softness. Um, and in yoga, we move our arms a lot about our head or we use our, our arms a lot in the practice of yoga. So there's a lot of repetitive and accumulative stress and strain around this area. And so our relationship to gravitational alignment is important and also how to, uh, if you like, um, regulate the forces through the shoulders and also support the arms in their actions uh, to focus in this upper area is, I think, is really essential. So it's. It's a bit of paradox, isn't it? I mean, through softness, you find this space in this in this region, and I quite like that because it's not the word that you would go to softness to try to find space. Normally, people would actually use force to find the space that they need. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think the traditional view is is quite mechanical. I think it's come from a historical uh, uh, component in terms of how we used to view the body in the past. Um, it has certain associations to the enlightened era. Um, science has contributed to the idea of viewing the body through mechanical forces and interpreting it from a segmented uh, perspective, which is, in, in some respects, is not bad, but in some respects, it has its own uh, drawbacks. Um, so when when I think about the body, it's it's less from a mechanical perspective, but more from an uh, if you like adaptive behavioral relationship, and that you know different parts of the body need to behave in particular ways, but also those behaviors are supported by other regions that are quite a distance from the area of action or or the area that you're trying to mobilize. So, you know, to me, it's more about behavior uh, when we come to the human body and especially the thorax or any other aspects of it. And what we're looking at is patterns of behavior that are inefficient or are not 
aligning with certain functional traits that are there um, because nature is intended it to be there in ways that makes things much more efficient and more sustainable and has long creates longevity. So I think the paradox is in the in the learning or how we have we have learned what the body mm. is. Right. right. Uh, you know, it's our interpretation of it. In many respects, uh, I think if you take certain Eastern martial arts, especially Tai Chi, there is a certain aspects of softness associated to the movement because that creates a greater level of awareness. With that level of awareness comes better clarity of how to coordinate and strategize your movement much more efficiently so that you are then able to produce the maximum amount of power and strength when it's required. So, so you know, there's a there's a basic term I think uh, the, to to uh, if I if I can remember correctly, um, go soft to be hard type mm. of stuff, you know, or something of that nature. So, so when when we think about our interpretations of the body, our interpretation leads to certain uh, uh, behaviors, those behaviors are, are acted out physically, and so we start to express the way we interpret things or the way that we are believed to, to be interpreting something. And most of it is learning. Uh, so I'm just offering an alternative viewpoint uh, from the perspective that we are looking at more from an organic, adaptive dynamic process rather than sort of individual landmarks and mechanics even though these are important yeah 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 i think that's a great way of start seeing the body in a different way something we just get so um what's that word obsessed even sometimes with just certain landmarks of our body and then we just forget the the bigger picture of how everything's related and how everything is supposed to function together. So that's a great way to start looking at the body. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the thorax is a complex system because there's so many moving parts to it. And I've also, you know, I have in the past broken the thorax up into three different behavioral um, types, uh, the upper first ribs, the mid ribs, and the lower ribs, all are interacting differently to the forces that are generated through your breathing patterns, whether it be intentional or just autonomic. Um, there is there is these behavioral relationships and that when you start to consider them and start to play in embodying them, you start to notice different levels of movement experience start to arise in your body, which then shapes what you were interpreting before slightly differently. It gives you new information. And then new information becomes uh, an upgrade to the current information that you are currently uh, in. So which is a great thing. I think we need to upgrade um, our understanding of our physicality. And, you know, and it happens anyway by by the force of nature. As we get older, our interpretation of the body changes anyway, or it's forced to change. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think this is a good thing. This is a very good thing. I think, yeah, of course, it's a great thing. And I think we're learning 
just from the fact that we're learning something new every day is is already helping so much in and just uh, changing those interpretations. Um, but I'm, I'm, I I I want to pick out on um, on the ribs area this time because you actually are seeing ribs um, almost. Uh, you look at them almost individually. It's like earlier you just mentioned how different regions of of the ribs have different behaviors almost and most of us we we see our ribs as something that is just there we we rarely think about our ribs actually i mean we think about the lungs when we breathe we think about different things but not so much the ribs so how do we get to know the ribs better <laughs> ah, very good question i i think i think again we have to look at um you know first the anatomical charts what is a rib what is what is it what does it do? How does it behave? You know, but also you have to consider from the nuance of things that ribs are not just um, cylindrical in their relationship to space. And there is a particular uh, anomalies to it as well uh, that you have to appreciate. So and then at the same time, the angulation of the rib in relationship to, if you like, the floor is essential. If you take, for example, the first rib. I mean, the angle of the first rib is just so beautifully acute in comparison to the very last floating rib, if you like. And I mean, these two ribs are going to behave differently to the forces that are generated internally. So I think I think when we start to look at the structure, or look at the shape of it, the structure or the function of it is going to determine the form, isn't it? How yeah. it's going to behave. So form always follows function. Right. Yeah. And so, but what we try and do is we try and um, somehow impose our view of what the structure should be. And we implement certain restrictions or inhibitions to that structure because we want the form to be different. Because what we are aligning with is a, is a visual aesthetic that we have put huge value on, that we have determined is um, something that needs to be strived for, but that aesthetic does not actually fit the structure. Mm -hmm. huh. Got to go back and think about the function again. Function is a, a really important ingredient, but my my thinking around the, the, the question that you said, uh, you know, how do we get to know the ribs, is look at the actual ribs themselves. Look at the way that they're shaped, because their shape will determine behavior. There will be a, muscles associated to those ribs. They will implement a certain force that will ask the rib to move in a particular way. But how the rib is shaped or orientated will also be the attachment point of how the muscle is going to be orientated as well. So it starts to inform you how things may be behaving. Right, right. Now I get you. Um, right. So there, I think now we have, what, 24 different points of meditation to, to see how these little guys can behave. Absolutely. I mean, the, the beautiful, the beautiful thing is, is that the rib cage is so closely relatable to to the support of the pelvis. 
So each individual rib, I think, is plays an important and key role to the structural support of the sacroiliac joint or the lower spine. So when we start to look at the individual ribs, they are like an orchestra. They they need to be coordinated. <laughs> and sometimes we get individual individual ribs that are not, for whatever reason, synergizing with the rest. There is a either rigidity or sort of stuckness, or there's a element of uh, dysfunctionality through its attachment points to the spine or to the sternum, whichever. It could be through injury, it could be through postural misuse, whole variety of reasons. This has impact. It has impact through the whole organism. And so I think we need to consider uh, consider these ribs. And, and it is a meditation. There is a requirement in terms of getting to know our structures from both a practical, tangible perspective, but also from an experiential relationship, uh, you know, a, a disciplined approach to investigating either through interpretation, imagination, or meditation uh, to develop more knowledge, to develop more insight, and to maybe become more connected to what we carry around every day. Yeah. Especially this region, I feel that this region has so many components, different parts from the structure itself. I mean, structure seems quite simple, but actually it's not. I mean, especially with the spine, you have every different spinous process or, you know, vertebrae to think about. And then all the muscles in this region and all the organs in this region as well. And like you said, how everything... I mean, they're they're really creating an orchestra, and one off note can create um, a little off sound. And how do you bring everything back together? There's just so much to think about. There is experience. I see, I see the pelvis is quite simple. The only requirement there is our ability to dive deep and sets and sense the inner structure and and the the three dimensional space there. Well, when it comes to the ribs, it's it's a little bit more complex. I think that there's there's so much adaptation required, and so many different influences from the bottom and also from the top of the body that are, are pressing upon this uh, this region in ways that can can create a certain segmentation between the upper and lower rib region. And not to mention the mid midsection of that rib area, which I think is is vitally important between T4 T6, if not just slightly lower down. Yeah. Um, I think we all need time to process all of this information that we just um, hear, uh, we just heard in this podcast. Um, so I'm actually gonna ask you. So last week, last week, yes, in the previous podcast. I like what you said at the end, whether with the with the pelvis. I mean, the um, analogy you use is to dive deep inside, right? So with this region, what would you say for this region? Uh, I, 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 for me, for this region is all about uh, spaciousness. Um, I think it's a it's a area that we need to explore from the inside out. And the mechanics of it also encompasses more, I think, the dualistic nature of hard and soft, especially in this uh, area of our body, the thorax. Yes, the pelvis has those qualities too, but it doesn't it doesn't allow us to interpret these qualities very well because it's such a 
such a secretive area of the pelvis. But the thorax, well, it's a little bit more expressive. There's more mobility and more movement. There's more obvious um, connections that we can make. But here the pelvis, I think, well, sorry, here the, the thorax encompasses both the, the yin and the yang more sweetly. Mm. Um, but here also is where our vulnerabilities sometimes can lie. So the idea of expanding outwardly is something that has to be explored because that's part of sort of mechanics that allows for the buoyancy and that sense of suspension and, and tone that supports the general internal mechanics. But to maintain that sense of outward, consistent or constant tone to maintain that level of buoyancy, we have to lift our center of gravity slightly higher. And that means there's a level of vulnerability that's associated to that, whether it be a structural uh, vulnerability or maybe a more psychological, emotional one. But that slight sense of higher center of gravity is quite uh, revealing. And also it, um, what would you call it? I can't think of the word right now, but it exposes you a little bit. Yeah, I thought about the word exposed just now. Yeah. So, so spaciousness is not easy to maintain or hold because it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a bigger picture that we have to en encompass and so there's a uh, there is a and a dissecting I suppose of our vulnerabilities if you like around this area and there's a dissecting of a defensive mechanism or bracing mechanism around this area and uh, so there is a uh, a letting go of certain uh, egocentric states. Ah from this region of our body, both good and not so good. Mm -hmm. And so spaciousness is, you know, spaciousness means freedom, but freedom comes with a certain level of responsibility that I think people don't generally appreciate. So, so I would say that I would interpret this region generally as an area of spaciousness. Ah, thank you. A lot to ponder there. So I think I'm going to leave it at that because I feel that that has been quite a few informations that we all can digest slowly. Uh, so before we end this, any last words about the thorax, Vincent? Uh, just, just uh, yeah, play those tunes very sweetly through your ribs. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. We'll definitely do. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome, Meta. Things and we'll move to different areas of the body in the next podcast. So we hope that you will still come back with us and listen to more Hansa Conversations next time. You've been listening to Hansa Conversations, a podcast. Please follow Hansa Yoga on Instagram and Facebook. Learn more about Hansa at hansa.yoga on the web, where you can also purchase online practice videos to practice at home. Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list to get updates on our latest news. So join us on the next Hansa Conversations and thank you for listening.